Hello, Lewis fans, and welcome to the Mere C.S. Lewis podcast. My name is Thornton. And my name is Taylor. We're two brothers who enjoy C.S. Lewis and want to take themselves and others on a journey through his writings. Yeah, Taylor, so we, I guess this is our, our uh, second, or sorry, no, our, our third full episode, and I guess our, our fourth total. How, how are you feeling about uh, the journey so far? I'm enjoying it. It's busy, but it's really rewarding. C.S. Lewis is so good, and he's so uh, life-changing to me, you know? So I, I think that it's really, really cool to be able to go through his writings, and I'm very excited to go through The Problem of Pain. I'm really excited about this book because it has a lot of um, really practical, practical knowledge that I think would help everybody who's ever dealt with this subject, which seems to be everyone I've met, yes. honestly. What about you? How are you enjoying it? Yeah, yeah, the journey, yeah, is fantastic. I think we're starting to get to the point where, like, some of the the luster of the uh, and excitement is wearing off. But yeah, it's still one of my I guess favorite parts of the week when we can come together. Also, like, I, I think the problem of pain or uh, the problem of evil, uh, closely related but not exactly the same, is the I guess best or strongest case against Christianity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the problem of pain, problem slash problem of evil is certainly a big concern for a lot of people who who are Christians and who are not. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah, Lewis, I think, gives a very conversational, commonsensical approach to Christian orthodoxy's answer to the to the to the problem. So, yeah, I'm, I've, this has been very helpful for me. And yeah, I'm certainly excited to share it with others. Mm-hmm. Me too. I would agree with that wholeheartedly. If it's not the, uh, I guess, strongest argument of Christianity, it is the most prominent, I would say. Mm-hmm. Because even in the, in the back of everyone's mind, be they believer or not, they wonder about this. They think about it. Why is it that we have to suffer? Why is it that humans are so evil to one another when God is supposed to be good? It's a very, very, uh, I don't know, strong subject. A strong point yeah. of uh, contention. My understanding is, yeah, that Job is the the first book of the Bible ever written. So it's mm-hmm. been a concern for people of faith for a, a long time. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, the, the, Lewis's uh, just teaching of the Christian Orthodox is is certainly helpful. But I, yeah, I think we won't know the full answer mm-hmm. to this problem on I guess the, this side of life. Mm, I agree with that. Absolutely. Yeah. And I guess also now that we're, I guess, on our, our fourth episode, yeah, I was sort of thinking a little bit more about, again, just sort of rethinking, like, what, what are the goals for this, for this podcast? Mm-hmm. The, the listeners were sort of thinking about as we're crafting these episodes are, yeah, we want to, I guess, cater or serve those who have like never read mm-hmm. this. Um, or one of the or one of his particular works, and and they just want to get a taste and see if it's worth their time. Mm-hmm. Or yeah, someone who has never read Lewis or or that particular work, and and just wants a Spartanote version, and just wants to get the gist of it, and, and then move mm-hmm. on. Uh, and then also just think about the the people of who have read Lewis or read a, a work, and they want to just connect with other readers or fans and. See what uh, see what they think. Mm-hmm. I like that. I think that it's very good for us to be able to do this, and then hopefully entreat others to at least look at it. If not, if not, yeah. you know, if not uh, for a long time, just a little second look. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, because yeah, some you're right. I've, I yeah, I didn't consider that. Yeah, some people might have read a particular work or read Lewis, and yeah, just uh, are interested in rekindling the fire, if mm-hmm. you will. So, yeah, so I guess yeah, that's four four aims that we have. So yeah, we we try to thread that needle every episode, and uh, I guess the re- the listeners will I guess be the judge of how successful we are at mm-hmm. that. We'll see. Cool. Well, Taylor, would you like to launch us into the the background and context of of the book? Sure. Well, an atheist, while Lewis was an atheist, he told his friend, Arthur Greaves, that he was, quote, uh, quite content to live without believing in a bogey who is prepared to torture me forever and ever if I should fail in coming up to an almost impossible ideal. He had... In in this quote, we can kind of see where he's beginning to think about Christianity as as his buddies are explaining it to him. And the more he thinks about it, he yeah. says to himself, it's kind of not fair. Right. But uh, four years prior to this book's publishing, though, he did convert to Christianity. Yep. Yeah. As, as we uh, retold or recounted or discussed in, in the Pilgrim's Redress episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah, after converting to Christianity, Lewis wrote two works, like I said, The Pilgrim's Redress and, and Out of the Silent Planet, mm-hmm. which these two books uh, impressed a publisher named Ashley Simpson, who he owned a small publishing firm. And Samson's thought was uh, Lewis was exactly the right man to write a book on pain for his, uh, quote, Christian Challenge series, which aimed to introduce the Christian faith to those outside of the church. Right. And at first, Lewis refused to publish the book in his own name since he was not a clergyman and he felt presumptuous talking about the subject at all. But he did acquiesce when he learned it was not, it, was, it wasn't in keeping with the series. So yeah, in some of my little ancillary research, I saw that uh, Lewis, he wanted his pseudonym to be like Nat Wilk. Which right, like, right. And this is like, totally pure lewis it was an old medieval john doe version. that makes sense uh, yeah it, it basically like was latin for like it meant someone like a random person <laughs> in, in latin that totally makes sense with who he is so yeah but yeah lewis began writing the book in the summer of 1939 and read it in installments to the inklings which he he dedicated the book to and he finished the book the following spring and As a reminder to our listeners, at this, Britain prepared for and entered to World War II, right? So he published it right before the Battle of Britain. Yeah, so like he published it, and yeah, like a month or two later, the German Air Force, since I can't pronounce their actual name, the German Air Force, that's when they started dropping the bombs on on London. So Mm -hmm. it was uh, a very timely book for, for many people. Right. Yeah, and yeah, and also writing the book, Lewis was also going through some personal physical pain of his self uh, for himself, and was treating himself with codeine and caffeine for a sharp pain that he had from uh, an injury he sustained slipping in a bathtub. Really? So, so yeah, he was uh, <laughs> wow. I did not know that. Yeah, so he was going through some yeah personal pain or pain at a personal level, while also going through some psychological pain as as his country is preparing for one of the greatest wars of uh the past several centuries Mm -hmm. wow okay well 
considering the overview of the text now, I guess we'll shift gears a little bit. Uh, mm-hmm. see, Lewis, he divided the book up into uh, 10 chapters, right? Yep. Yeah. He divided it up as an introduction, a divine omnipotence, divine goodness, human wickedness, the fall of man. And he did two chapters on human pain. Um, he did one on hell, animal pain, and a last one on heaven. And then he has an appendix supplied with a with a supplied by rather like a fellow inkling. Uh, yeah, the the each chapter leads into into the next, mm-hmm. and and but Lewis starts off by tracing in broad philosophical strokes the the origin of religion, especially Christianity, and why and why when he when Lewis was an atheist he didn't believe in God, and with these two threads. Uh, he sort of uh, it leads to the, the problem of pain. Right. Um, Lewis frames that problem as, um, quote, if God were good, he would wish to make his creatures perfectly happy. And if God were almighty, he would be able to do what he wished. But the creatures are not happy. Therefore, God lacks either goodness or power or both. And he admits this is the problem of pain in its simplest form. It's, I mean, it's, and it's a basic form of logic, right? If, then, if, then, this, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. And Lewis says the answer to the problem is to understand God's divine attributes. And that it, if, if the normal meanings that we attach to things like goodness, power, happiness, or are the ways to understand, then he says the problem is is unanswerable but we have to understand those words from uh in in a greater sense right and yeah and and he goes on to explain the the christian orthodoxy's understanding of god's omnipotence which is a fancy way to say all powerfulness uh and and god's goodness right and i think that he he begins he begins that omnipotence he kind of begins that by saying what is intrinsically possible versus intrinsically Mm -hmm. impossible right and it makes sense what he's going what he's going through like um it's impossible to say that i mean what's a good example of that thornton what can you think of i I can't think of anything right off the top yeah i remember like in seventh grade so like someone knew i I went to church and asked me like hey like can if god is all powerful can he create a, a rock that he can't pick up right uh so yeah something like something like that and lewis says that if if it's not a thing right then it's an, a non-entity yeah. right yeah yeah god yeah god can do anything and it, yeah if the thing is like inherently nonsensical or inherently contradictory then it is in like by definition not a thing right so right and i think that that's extra, i think it's just so cool yeah nonsense remains nonsense even when we talked it about god yep and he says, just because you uh, basically, like, he says, just because you put uh, can God in front of a sentence or in front of a uh, in front of a noun doesn't make it like true, sensible. I guess, where sensible. Right. I thought that was just funny. Um, yeah. Yeah. But either way, um, Lewis goes on to explain that because God is good, he wants us to share in his own perfect, uh, complete and eternal goodness. Right. And pain and suffering are means by which God can mold this transformation, right? Yeah, and while we may not like this 
Lewis says we must see ourselves as we really are, which is uh, bad people, and and to die to ourselves through obedience and sacrifice. Right. And he goes on to say some people will never reform because they actively refuse to allow God to remake them. And for everything else, for everyone else, heaven awaits not as a reward, but as if, say, a loving couple had been reunited, right? And I think that this is one of his biggest points, one of the most interesting points, in that he says God can't force someone to come to him, can't force someone to accept him. So the choices are left to him, either um, absolve them of everything and make it like it never happened or just leave them alone, right? And he says, and quote, in the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all costs? To give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help? But he has done so on Calvary. Do you ask to forgive them? They will not be forgiven. Do you want to, do you want to leave them alone? Alas, I'm afraid that's what he does. Classic classic Lewis yeah that's pretty good Mm -hmm. yeah and Lewis also admittedly speculates on animal pain Mm -hmm. and how their experience fits into the larger problem of pain right and yeah and this and this is as we've said before Lewis is basically he's not other than maybe his thoughts on animal pain is not adding anything particularly unique to to christian thought he's just explaining in his uh, classic christian orthodoxy on on the 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 thought to this problem Mm -hmm. so yeah a lot of this stuff you can find in uh, uh, saint augustine or aquinas uh, and and many more and he but he he just does a great job of communicating it and distilling it Mm -hmm. and 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 one one word i had learned as as i researched this book is the a Christian's explanation to the problem of pain is called a theodicy. Mm. I I did not I did not know that. So that was a a, a fun little term to mm-hmm. learn. And and I, I I'll be interested in your thoughts on this, Taylor. I thought of uh, after really reading Pilgrim's Redress, I thought it would be fun to write a an an allegory called the Odyssey about someone learning or or trying to figure out the answer to this problem. (laughs) You're hilarious. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. So they they go on their own little odyssey trying to figure out their own theodicy. Um, That's funny. Yeah. And and instead of like trying to find the island, they would be trying to find uh, the answer to the problem of pain. Um, I like it. Well, we'll we'll let the listeners decide if they'd like to hear something like that. So now we'll discuss criticisms of the work by Lewis's contemporaries and, and those of uh, those of today. Yeah, let's see. So the Guardian, the Spectator and Christian periodicals of the time, they all gave it positive reviews. They praised it for, uh, quote, it's frank admission of facts and unpalatable facts. They also praised Lewis's, quote, clarity and sparkle. I like that. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Today, the problem of pain uh, earns a 4.1 out of 5 rating on Goodreads with over 46,000 reviews. Many find his work uh, refreshingly objective, while also short, conversational, commonsensical and and witty. 
uh, hallmarks for Lewis's later writings. And this is very much a, a good, uh, a good introduction to Lewis's writing style, because this is very much his tone for, for his other apologetic works. Mm -hmm. And some though think his writing is heavy, uh, heavy with logic uh, that hits the mark while sometimes go, uh, going astray. Right. And that kind of leads into the negative criticisms, right? Like uh, one, one evangelical, uh, they criticize Lewis's, I guess, more poetic and symbolic interpretation of Genesis chapters like one through three. And I think that this is, this is when he's going through his, not exactly, a, I mean, he kind of is going through like a theistic evolution phase, which he, which he uh, eventually kind of criticizes later on in his life. But it's still an interesting thought to think that this is, this is the Lewis that we know and love. He was actually, he actually believed in evolution at some point. Right. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Like I think we mentioned in the biography episode that, yeah, if you try to fit Lewis in, in, into any denominational mold, you will, uh, yeah, you will disappoint yourself. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah, in an atheist's review of the book surmised that the book is unconvincing to one who does not already agree with the book's basic assumptions. Right. Uh, and while not a criticism of, of this specific work, uh, Nietzsche's work beyond good and evil and, and the genealogy of morals uh, takes the op- opposing view uh, specifically to where morals come from and, and how we relate to them. Uh, Nietzsche would say religion's fusion of morals with the, the numinous slash supernatural, uh, which Lewis talks about in the introduction, uh, Nietzsche would say that that is an error and, and a way for religion to, to lord over humanity. Right. And again, I think that that would be a very good book to read for us as to be able to get give it a little more context, or maybe not context, a little more mm-hmm. um, analysis. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I know. Yeah, as as you and I uh, discuss or are recording more and more about uh, mere Christianity, I know we we do talk more more about mm-hmm. that. Yeah, uh, yeah. For mentions and references in in pop culture, we have a song by Atlas, spelled A T T A L U S, and they have a song titled "The Problem of Pain." Yeah. Yeah. So that, yeah, that's one more than, than we found last. That's time. right. There's so, nothing for Pilgrim's Regress. If I remember yeah, correctly. Nothing, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. If anyone else out there knows of any other uh, pop culture references to the problem of pain. Yeah. Please let us know. Was there anything else from that? Uh, I just, any other quotes or any other ideas? Yeah. That stood out yeah. To you? Honestly, I think one of the ideas that, has struck me every time that I've read this is the fact that is the way that he describes this idea that he's expressed before within uh, he expressed it in miracles mm-hmm. where if two people are inhabiting one space, but one creature has complete and total control over everything that is in that space. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Does that mean that the other individual does or does not have free will right so because if he was to form a sentence if he was to try to form a sentence and the air around him wouldn't obey him Mm -hmm. could he really speak or if his brain matter wasn't in wasn't set up in a way where he was able to think the way he wanted to think can he even think his own thoughts right so i like this idea that he has set up where 
in order for us to be able to have free will, we have to have the options to be able to think, to say, to do the things that we want to do. But to do that, we have to be able to identify ourselves and then an exterior mm. um, others, right? Yeah. And then we also, we also have to have kind of this medium for our for us as individuals to be able to operate with it. And that's what he calls nature, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I find that idea really, really cool in that it's, it acts as a neutral something that like, that the both that like me and you, we can both use them in a way that you, we can both use it in a way that will help us meet our own ends. Mm-hmm. But just be, and just because like one thing happens to be good or suitable for me, doesn't mean it's going to be good or suitable for you. So yeah. like, I like basically what he's saying is that God has set up this sort of system to work in and of itself without any other assistance. Right. I mean, the world, the world spins around its axis and the axis and and it spins around the sun all by itself on its own track because he set it up, he set it up as a system to work within its own physical laws. Mm -hmm. Right. I like the fact that he kind of brought that up and he said, without that neutral something, we wouldn't be able to operate with that free will, but that neutral something can also be used for evil. The analogy yeah. he uses is the same good quality of rigidity that you give to like a stick or a piece of wood. Mm-hmm. That same quality can be used to hurt another individual. You can use it to swing at another individual, right? Mm-hmm. So the good thing that was given to the wood that it's, 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 its quality of rigidity, which makes it very useful, is also makes it where someone evil could use it for their own purposes, right? That's that idea of something very good being used in a bad way. Later, or yeah, around this time, about how it isn't a question of if if um, if this was the best world that God could have created, but just it seems to be the only world He could have created, mm. uh, just because of all the all the things that have to be balanced. Uh, and I feel yeah. like this, but I guess, I, I don't know, I feel like someone, an atheist or someone who is playing devil's advocate would say like, well, like God in his infinite wisdom and infinite power, couldn't he just like continue to like, cr- like create food? But I guess mm. Lewis would say that like, w- there's like rules to the system. And yeah, can, and that, that would be something like a miracle, right? Yeah. Is that, yeah, we do believe in miracle. Like there were, we do believe that yeah, at times God does step in but i guess i don't it seems to be that he does that sparingly instead of all the time yeah and there's a part in the book where he addresses that and he says i think it was basically where he says what makes miracles so special and crazy is the fact that they don't they they don't happen that often that god can and does on occasions modify the behavior of matter and produce what we call miracles is part of christian faith Mm. but the very conception of a common and therefore stable world demands that these occasions should be extremely rare play devil's advocate i don't know if it would demand for it to be extremely rare and i guess where does that stop where does his interference stop yeah yeah i just yeah you could maybe say yeah that's just divine wisdom that knows but it just it is an interesting question to like yeah like what yeah at what point is it too much and what yeah why why isn't there more and Mm. um i don't know maybe someone would argue that like god has created plenty of rules and systems for our benefit i guess we just choose to not use them in the correct way 
um, I don't know, maybe you could argue it's a free will thing that he's already given, like set up the system to be mm-hmm. overall good. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess moving on a little bit, yeah. There, my imagination got sparked a little bit, and I, and I guess for the brevity, I guess one of the I think good things about this book is its brevity, so I understand why he didn't go into it. But mm-hmm. it'd be interesting. I know on the last page, it, Lewis talked about another objection uh, that said, "Well." If there were, if God was faced with creating a world that, like, had to have suffering, like there's no other way to create a, a world, uh, then how could absolute goodness have even created it to begin with? Why did he choose? Why didn't he choose not to create it? Is mm. uh, so it'd be interesting to hear people's thoughts uh, about that? I, I know I've heard different theories. Um, yeah, of why why God created the world in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what have you? What have you heard for for theories or ideas by about that? What it seems to me is that he is he is the ultimate creative, right? Mm-hmm. He is the ultimate artist. Now, mm-hmm. If I was him, I'd want to use. I'd want to. I'd want to make something. Yeah. But at the same time, him being who he is and what he did, he had to have known, or he did know, what exactly what was going to happen whenever he created specific beings that were going that yeah. had the ability to disobey him or or do evil things. So, yeah. I think if I was to say, like, if I was if I was asked why do you think he did it, mm-hmm. I, you know, why not? Why would an artist painstakingly put all of his time into one specific painting because he found it he found it to be worthy? You know, yeah. I don't know. I think that's a very hard question, and it's something that I don't think we'll ever really have a good answer. But yeah. what, what about you? Yeah, I I had heard. Or what, what some, yeah, some theories I've heard, probably the, the my favorite one is that God just wants company. Mm. Um, and, and not not to make him sound like a, a lonely guy, it's just that in in the Trinity, he's just like a he's like a perfect relationship. Mm. And I guess like the relationship was so perfect, he just wanted to share it with another being that was like had something that he could relate to. Mm. Um, and so that's why, well, yeah, why he created us in his image and gave us a spirit and stuff. So that's why I heard that, yeah, he wanted to commune with uh, another entity that he recognized. Mm. Um, so I, I think that's kind of poetic. And and I and that that and actually that thought actually helped me solve a, an, a practical problem of mine because I was thinking like for years and this thought was born in college. Um, I was thinking, like, why would I want to have children? Like, who knows what suffering they would endure? What who knows mm. what like what not only what suffering, but like I could potentially be bringing someone into the world who rejects, like, in a in a sense, like, could reject God and then go to hell. Like, I'm bringing someone who could go into hell. So, like, mm. why why would I risk that? Mm. Um, and not not only for all the suffering Rachel and I could be put through, but also like that they could be put through. Mm. Um, so, but I was like, well, wait a minute. God seems to have already like made his decision on this thing. Like he one, he decided to yeah, he decided to create us. Like he sort of birthed us into existence, and and he he knew some like he knew what he was going into much better than what I know, and he still decided to do it, mm. and he still 
yeah, like you were saying, still on some level thinks it's inherently a worthy cause. Priceless. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's like worth something for life. This book just sort of helped help me think about it. Like, yeah, there there are sufferings in the world. There are a lot of bad things that you and I will experience, and people we mm. love will experience. But yeah, the there's something inherently good, and mm. which which outweighs all the other bad or suffering that that is out there. Mm. Yeah. It's a very poignant thought. I agree. Yeah. What were your takeaways or lessons uh, from the yeah, divine goodness? Yeah, I got you. Um, I, I think that talking about the main crux, I think for chapter three is the divine goodness. What he's doing is he's reevaluating goodness. What does it mean mm-hmm. to be good? What does it mean that God would, that God is all good, you know, referring back to the original argument. Mm-hmm. And I think that his biggest, the biggest takeaway for me was when he started talking about goodness in like the egoistic versus the altruistic version, right? Mm-hmm. Like, um, <clears throat> because he says like, okay, well, an argument might arise where you would say, isn't the love that you're talking about, the love that God supposedly has for us, isn't that jealous love or um, selfish love? Mm-hmm. And he said, well, you're, I think basically he says, you're thinking about it in a human sense. Think of, because if someone who is selfishly loving, someone who is egotistically loving, they have something in the game from the subject. They have something that they want, be it admiration be it um, service, be it whatever. There's something that they want. There's something that the other person is the other person is able to provide that is necessary for the for for the lover to be interested to love. Mm-hmm. But he says God is not like that. He does not need anything from us. There is no way that he would do something to try and solicit something from us because he doesn't need it. Whatever yeah. whatever needs he has. He allows himself to need them because we need him. You know, I thought that was such an interesting point is that you're, that we're looking at it from the wrong. We're looking at it from a human perspective. So when it comes to God's love that requires the, that requires the betterment of the subject so that they might become more lovable. Mm -hmm. I think that that was such a poignant, uh, like subject, such a really, Really strong argument, in my opinion. I think that that makes a lot of sense to me. Yes, I think that the divine goodness, and when yeah, when and when Lewis is saying what you you were saying, I think that is a really powerful, certainly a very powerful concept, and I think it does. I think it does go a long way to explain the problem of pain, or at least it provides a a very critical, I mm-hmm. guess, step in in the yeah. argument. Yep. Because now what he's done is he's <clears throat> he's already talked about two of the biggest points, God's power, and what is his power really, um, for lack of a better phrase, limited to, mm-hmm. and then his goodness, which yeah. is altogether, not altogether different, but very different than what we presupposed. Yeah. So now it, I think he's going to begin getting into the, to the meat of his argument, and I think that's what's going to be very interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's so here's a line to sort of yeah, talk, let's sort of sum up what we were saying. But he, yeah, mm-hmm. he was uh, Lewis says that 
you ask for a loving God, you have one, not, not mm. a senile benevolence that drowsily wishes you to be happy in your own way, not the cold philanthropy of a conscientious magistrate, nor the care of a host who feels responsible for the comfort of his guests, but the consuming fire himself. Mm. Wow. And then, yeah, yeah, Lewis later says, yeah, because he already loves us, he must labor to make us lovable. Yeah, and I think yeah he uses this idea later in when he's talking about the the animal pain as well, because now we've been we've been defining terms. We're going to see how the terms help us. Yes, yeah, and I, I think this is yeah something yeah defining terms is I think critical in, in any argument, but certainly this one because I think yeah as Lewis had said earlier that if we just attach the normal everyday meanings to some of these words. The problem seems impassable. So, you, yeah, you need a, a chapter on each of these critical terms mm -hmm. to sort of, yeah, explain the, the deeper or in more and the fullest meaning of of what what it means when God is goodness. You and I pretty much agree on pretty much everything Lewis says. And mm. uh, but and this all makes sense to us. But I will say it certainly is hard to swallow in reality. Mm. When when you're enduring a trial and or enduring pain, and 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 then just either thinking it yourself or telling someone like, oh, this is God's goodness or mm. this is God showing you love, and yeah, it. Uh, so I, yeah, I think this is like a, certainly a good chapter, but it's certainly hard to remember and hard to hard stomach. to put into practice. Mm. Yeah, yeah, hard to yeah put into practice stomach when you're actually going through something really painful mm. i mean we talked about this in the in the biography episode how he he looks back on the on the problem of pain thinking to himself oh if i only knew mm -hmm. i had no idea you know what what real pain and anguish was until you know he lost joy but yeah which i've always thought was interesting because when he wrote problem of pain not like he had lost his mother he had been to war and was like blown up in war. Mm. And then when he was writing this book in particular, he was like suffering from a pretty sharp pain in his ribs. And then he went on to experience pain later in his life, uh, I guess with his father dying and then maybe a, a sort of a slow burn pain with some of his like professional I don't know if failures is the right term, but just sort of professional losses since he did not rise as quickly as others. Um, right. But then, yeah, then obviously, or it, but joy was probably one of the most painful things from his life. So mm. it's interesting that he, that even though he had had pain, he had dealt with pain and trials before, it wasn't until later in his life that he like dealt with the hardest trial of his life. Right. Mm-hmm. I could not imagine. When I was reviewing human wickedness and yeah. the fall of man, I, I don't know what it was, but just something about these topics just really hit me as just really complicated and really dense. And yeah. I, yeah, Lewis does a good job of making it about as clear as possible and also making only talk, talking about it in about 10 pages, which I feel like is relatively succinct. But I feel right. like we could talk about this like forever. Mm -hmm. I can agree with that. Yeah. But I think it's really talking about human wickedness. I mean, talking about the issues of total depravity versus like not. And then just 
at base realize recognizing that humans are wicked or humans are i guess ruined or broken they are not good yeah you know i think that that is it's such a realization and it's such a hard topic to actually talk about but mm-hmm. like you said he does such a great job of breaking it down and he breaks it down in such a way where he's like hey this is the deal we're not we are not good it's hard to it's hard to call us good but here are seven reasons why you know it's it's kind of here's like seven reasons why people think that they're good and they're actually not you know i thought that was really cool the way he the way he did that yeah that list that he he gave to quote yeah make the reality less incredible i thought was really helpful Lewis, I know in this in this chapter in the human wickedness chapter, he yeah he he blames yeah the psychoanalysis as as an mm-hmm. as for one reason why people don't think they're as bad as they are, and I think some people might use psychoanalysis to yeah explain why people are as bad as they are. Uh, yeah, because they because just as so as to say that like shame is shame is not a bad thing; it's a very normal thing. In fact, you shouldn't be you shouldn't be ashamed about this or that at all. Which I'm glad you brought up shame because I like, like you said, a lot of people think of it as bad, but I, Mm -hmm. I, I feel like shame should, I think shame is overdue for a renaissance. I, Mm. I I think that it certainly could, I don't know if, if, if you were able to explain it in the right way and in the right spirit, I think people could see the, the benefit of shame because yeah, Lewis talks about how shame is not valuable for the, in and of itself but for the insight it provides mm-hmm. um, and i and i think yeah but i think if if people are open about the shame they feel or are willing to i guess experience that feeling i think the their community or the collective society should also train themselves to be gracious when because mm. i uh when when someone feels shame because i feel like shame can easily be snuffed out like it has or sort of sh- shuffled under the rug if mm. if if someone doesn't feel grace or they don't they don't have a a reasonable expectation of grace you don't you shouldn't maybe expect grace if mm. uh but yeah the, as a community you should be prepared to give it I feel like, I don't know, me saying this, I feel like this might come back to bite me someday. Uh, oh, yeah. Because I feel like this to be uh, taken out of context uh, very easily. But, uh, yeah, I think this this chapter made me realize the value of shame a, a whole lot more. Mm, I can agree with that. I can agree with that for sure. Just recognizing that something that you have done is evil or bad or, yeah. you know, not good. Not good. I think I think that you're right. I think that there's a difference between shame and conviction. I think there's a difference between oh, what do you think those types of things? I think the difference is well, I think that shame is just it's a natural consequence. It's a consequence of doing something that maybe you realize isn't good, right? Mm-hmm. But then conviction is something that's something that the spirit does to you. It's something that he brings on in your life, and he says, and that's a call to change. Whereas shame may not necessarily be a call to shame. It's just a call to recognize. Yeah, well, that's really interesting, too. And I definitely want to talk about the total depravity with you here in a minute. But so I, so what you're saying is you can have shame, but not conviction. Uh, but when you have conviction, that is what leads you to change. Uh, mm. so, so I'm curious, can, would you say that you can have conviction without shame? Hmm. Or is shame a you necessary know? condition for conviction? I'm not sure. Um, 
I'm not sure. I'd say maybe, maybe not. Cause I could have a conviction to be able to do something differently than the way that I'm doing it. And maybe it's not bad. Like maybe what? it's just not, I don't know. Like, um, Hmm. I guess it would be a conviction for me to say, I would like to start doing this more. I'd like to start giving more, mm. you know, there's no shame in saying I have not been giving, mm-hmm. but there is conviction in saying, I want to give more mm. to this charity, to this person, to this church, whatever, you know, maybe, I, maybe, maybe there's a difference. Maybe that's the difference. Maybe that's what I'm thinking of kind of, maybe that's what's rolling around in my mind. You know? Cool. Well, I guess yeah. moving on to the, yeah, the fall of man chapter, uh, mm-hmm. I just curious on if you if you had any uh, thoughts or analyses on, on that chapter you wanted to share. I think basically what he's saying is like, look, it could have been like this. It could have been like that. All we know is that it happened. Yeah. The fall happened. We were in line with the Lord. We were walking with him. Right. Yeah. We stepped away, put ourselves, put ourselves in his spot. And now we're broken. There's something wrong. And that and that mm-hmm. that requires a savior that requires a fix, you know, mm-hmm. um, but his whole description when it comes to how he describes how it might have happened, the fall might have happened, I guess, maybe his theory. I don't really know. If, I don't know if I believe it. I don't know if I can stick. I don't know if I die on that hill. Yeah, around that part. Uh, so he was talking about his what he thought might have happened. And he like wrote like the like his sort of like synopsis or illustration for it. And I'm curious, this is sort of tangential to the chapter, but I'm curious what you think about that technique of he's like basically trying to lay out an argument in this entire book Mm -hmm. or basically summarizing the Orthodox view to the answer to the problem of pain or problem of evil. And then in here, he sort of inserts, sort of like a little story if you will about how things might have gone mm. um and so yeah do you think that is appropriate for what he, he's trying to do or do you think that type of technique should stay out of a, a work like this or basically what do you think the place is of, of, of a christian imagination i say that when it comes to a christian imagination you, you should be able to imagine and question anything mm-hmm. right i mean that's what that's what makes us reasonable creatures Mm-hmm. But when it comes to his technique, you know, I'm not sure because I would say from what I've seen, from what I've recognized in the way that he's writing this book, I want to say it's to Christians. Mm-hmm. I want to say that it is to believers because he kind of in a lot of these in a lot of the arguments, he presupposes things that we should know. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so I think that in this sort of stage. I call it appropriate because he's not saying this is what you should believe. Mm-hmm. This is what this is what is absolute. He's saying, consider this, right? Consider the way that we're looking at it now versus how you've looked at it before. Consider this, you know. I'd say that it's not if it was if it was a um, if it was a work defending the Christian faith. I would say that maybe go in a different direction, go with something a little more concrete, or go with something that's a little more arguable, mm-hmm. but. Seeing as this is more just like imagination, like you said, I think it's I think it's just fine. I think that it's I think that it's kind of it's getting to his point where you need to recognize there is a fall. God is not God is not happy with us. Right. Yeah. Um, and then I think after that, he moves on to, into the next 
the next chapters and he starts talking about um, actual pain, right? But I say that it's appropriate. What are your What are your thoughts? I I think it is. Yeah, I I think if, if he is talking to other Christians, I think painting a picture uh, of how things are sort of filling in some of the blanks um, mm-hmm. that are. I guess inherent in any story. I think no matter how exhaustive a story is, there will always be uh, blanks or things that you could draw outside of what is being said. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I think that is helpful for Christians because I guess it just helps them maybe just personalize it a little bit more. It helps them sort of think through some of the uh, inferences that, uh, that could be made from the text. Um and just just sort of comparing and contrasting what they maybe originally thought compared to what another believer uh, thinks about a passage. So I think it's mm. valuable from that. Extent. I, yeah, I think if you're talking to non-Christians, then I think it can get a little a little bit more fuzzy um, if it's if it's good or bad. Because yeah, non-Christians might latch onto it and be like, oh, okay, this there's like there's new thought to this. Like it's, it's, it's a living sort of idea or living sort of discussion. It's not just a a memorization of Mm. what people said hundreds, thousands of years ago. Um, But at the same time, I think it's certainly Lewis's imagination and is not, I don't think anyone would call it like divinely inspired. So it's not like second scripture. So I think that someone who, is just coming into the faith or who doesn't know the faith, they could think that they could think, Oh, this is like authoritative when it, when it's mm. not. Mm. Um, so, and I guess something, the, the idea of a Christian imagination is something I've been, I guess, mulling over and reflecting on a, a, a little bit recently um, and just sort of figuring out what, what's the place for it mm. is that I think God gave us the, yeah, the capacity to imagine things and, and, imagining is very useful with imagining like a future and how to get from a current state to a future mm-hmm. state. And yeah. Um, and then also just sort of, I think it helps encourage you like being able to imagine what life will be like in heaven or when Christ returns, mm-hmm. certainly I think helps you endure and persevere here and now. Mm-hmm. But I, yeah, I think sometimes yeah, the imagination can certainly run too far in a, negative direction mm. um, well what so, do you mean can you, can you can you walk me through that what do you mean by that oh i think you can certainly start imagining things and just get really caught up in your imagination and you just be wrong and but mm. you i just because you're so enamored with the idea or with yourself or whatever you can just start mm. thinking that it's true when it's not mm. um but i think also just imagination is just so intoxicating that you can use it for good to help people understand deeper mm. truths. Mm. Um, I agree with that. Yeah. So I, I think, I think the way I didn't really notice uh, or really even think about this. The first time I read this, it was only through preparing for this that I thought about this. So I, with that being said, I think it is like an appropriate technique. Um, it didn't sort of, cost me the the first time i read it like oh how dare he i was just kind of thinking like oh like he was sort of making up like sort of feel like i said filling in the blanks of what he thought happened mm. um 
so I think yeah, it was probably a good. Uh, a, he used it about as well as you could ask for in a work like this. Yeah. Um. So I think it was a good use. I was just yeah curious on your thoughts on on just the technique in general mm-hmm. and stuff. Yeah, I think that it's. I think that you are absolutely right that in getting so enraptured in your own imagination and what something might have been like, mm-hmm. you sort of may or may not forsake reasonable, um, reasonable mm-hmm. deduction or maybe just, or maybe just reason in itself for that, for that personal imagination. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that, I think that, I think that what you said is, is also, mm-hmm. is also true in that he, he, he put it in a good spot, I think. And I think that he did it in such a way, whereas, we are not, we would, we don't have to look at it and feel accosted. We don't have to look at it and feel offended. You know, I think that it's, I think that it's, it's wisely put in that he's trying to get us to think about it, think about it maybe a little differently than we might have before. Yeah. Yeah. And I know we'll, we'll probably talk a lot more about this when we get to the animal chapter. Um, mm. Cause that whole chapter is basically Christian imagination. Yeah. Uh, with, yeah. But he, I think he certainly uses reason as, as a framework and, and as a skeleton for him to sort of, flesh it out a little bit more so taylor so the first chapter of human pain yeah like we were talking about earlier i feel like this is really like there's a lot of good stuff he's mentioned but this i think is like the meat this is like really what people think about when they think about pain or think about the problem of evil mm-hmm. um and but before we i just launch into just what lewis was saying i have uh, a question for you or what do you think is the difference between pain and evil between pain yeah. and pain. evil yeah pain and evil hmm i think that pain is something is a well they're both consequences i suppose consequences of different things pain is call it almost i'd say it's almost natural it's a, it is a it is not See, pain is, let's see, pain is an indicator to know something's wrong, right? Pain is, if you get a cut, it hurts. Mm-hmm. I'd say pain is a natural consequence, whereas evil is not necessarily, I wouldn't call it natural. I don't know. What do you, I, I'm a little, a little hesitant to answer. What about you? Can you clarify that? Yeah. So I know Lewis says uh, that pain is, uh, is like unmasked evil mm. and so and, and and god and he says that god uses pain and probably the most famous quote in the book god whispers to us in our pleasures speaks in our conscience but shouts in our pain it is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world mm. so yeah so I think that is the, that is has to be his most favorite his most famous quote, or at least from this book. Yeah, yeah, certainly from this very book. good quote from him. So I, I, so I guess I'll. I think Lewis would say that pain is God's way of showing us, like undeniably, or uh, that yeah, where, where, and what evil is that there's a problem. I'm just interested in the distinction because Lewis, like obviously, this book is about pain. Uh, I know the classic theological problem is like it's usually framed as the problem of evil, mm. and and Lewis frames it earlier in the book, but Lewis framed it as pain. Where I know most people they mostly frame it as evil. So until I I read Lewis's uh, explanation of the difference, I like I didn't really think of 
them as two like significantly different things. Yeah, so, yeah. So yeah, because I was thinking, I was like, oh, okay, all these arguments can count for evil too. But now Lewis is saying that pain is something different. So I'm like, okay, like if he's arguing, if he's like arguing or trying to explain away pain, then he's not trying to explain away evil. One thing I really like about this chapter or the chapter six, and uh, I just before we did off is how it, it, it did sort of show me that like pain and suffering are like mm. integral or inherently a part of the Christian faith. And like, yeah, you, you there's no better example than Jesus. Mm-hmm. So, I can agree. Yeah. So you, like you, I think, yeah, as a Christian, you need to be very, well prepared for yeah this possibility but i think on the Mm -hmm. the bright side like god promises and gives tons of resources to help you through those trials Mm -hmm. um and with the added bonus of of the ultimate goal making it all worth it and and then yeah and i just that's where faith and hope come in is is that of like even in the darkest and the shadow of the valley of death, like you, you know that. So hell, so hell. Yes. So what were, what were your, what were your thoughts? What what did were your takeaways? What did you think about hell? Okay. Well, where the hell do I start? Yeah. Um, thank you. Thank you. Hell. Um. I think that what he's done here is just like with the chapter, I like what he's done because I think that it's like, it's not like he, I feel like he has like a formal argument type of thing. Mm-hmm. I feel like maybe he does, but to me, it's almost more informal mm-hmm. almost because I feel like he's giving his opinion, his ideas on how it works. And they are backed by, I mean, he references Aquinas, he references uh, St. Augustine, but to me, it just feels more like, hey, this is why it makes sense to me. And I feel like he leaves it up to you a little bit in deciding whether or not you think it's reasonable. And I think that's really interesting. I really like the way he's done that. What about you? What, what, did you, what, were, your, what were your first conceptions on, on hell here? Yeah, to, yeah, to your point, I, I think that's sort of the strength of, in, of the book and uh, in, in of Lewis is he, he wasn't mm. trying to do a... Uh, a point by point argument. He was just sort of restating or reiterating orthodoxy. And mm. I think very much in Lewis fashion, he's very humble about it. He, he sort of says like, Hey, this, this is what orthodoxy says, or this is what uh, reason leads us to. Like, I'm, I'm just like you. I wish I, we could, we could change it. Mm. And, and I, yeah, I think, yeah, it's like in the first, yeah, it's in the first paragraph. He says, quote, some will not be redeemed. There's no doctrine which I would mm. more willingly remove from Christianity than this, end quote. So, yeah, and so I think he's he's very much like a lot of people that, yeah, hell, the idea of hell, or at least the medieval idea of hell, uh, mm. the, the, the pitchforks and the burning and the all the evil things that, yeah, like I said, you see in medieval paintings, that's what a lot of people think of as hell Mm. and they're, and that's certainly not palatable to use a word he used earlier Mm. in the book. Um, But I, I, I think his, 
his uh, logic or, or his, like you were saying, his pontifications about what hell might actually mm. be are reasonable. Yeah. Um, so that, that made, that made me pause and just sort of made me think like, yeah, like maybe I've thought about hell all wrong um, about this. And it's the, the image of hell being like locked from the inside. Mm. Yes. Is, is I think there's a powerful, I thought that was a very powerful illustration. I thought that was, I thought I I just loved that. It was so typical of him Mm -hmm. to say something so profound in so few words and just kind of peck that idea. It's so crazy. I mean, because he talks about that and like, and like you said, like the first paragraph continuing a little bit further um, when he starts talking about how, um, like he says to himself, like if the game is played, it's possible to lose it. If the happiness of a creature lies in self surrender, nobody but him can make it. Some can mm-hmm. help him, but then he says to himself, "I would li- I would pay any price to say truthfully, all will be saved." But my reason retorts, "Without or with it." If I say, "Without their will," I had once perceive a contradiction. How can the supreme voluntary act of self surrender be involuntary? And if I say with their yeah. will, my reason replies, "How if they will not give in?" This is. This is really building off of what he's talked about in earlier chapters. I can't remember exactly which one, but the the prime good, the prime part of repentance, right? Yeah. Is the laying down of self. So he says yeah. here, but what if that won't be done? And it's not that God won't forgive. He offers forgiveness. But what if it's not accepted? Right. Yeah. What if they, they what if they say, I will not. Then he says, OK, there's nothing else for you. Right. And yeah. then he starts getting into the maybe what hell will look like. I mean, well, the first problem he, he kind of tackles is mm-hmm. a little, I don't know, it's a little different, but that's basically, I think that's basically what he's getting at. And I really, I thought that, I just thought that was so cool. Yeah. Yeah. I guess and maybe we're getting a little too far of ahead of right. ourselves. I do I, that. I, I, yeah. I said, I do want to like acknowledge how, the the issue of hell is kind of sticky right uh especially as when when as christians talk about mercy and grace mm. and then then it's like oh but if you don't accept the mercy and grace then there's hell so it's like wait a minute like you're it seems like a bait and switch mm. uh, uh, uh in, in a way where it's like i'm receiving this mercy but it's like i'm receiving it with like a gun against my head mm-hmm. um so i think yeah i think that part of or that criticism is certainly a valid one uh especially like i said when you when you bring in like the medieval art mm-hmm. aspect of it yeah all um, those nasty ugly paintings oh yes um but and i know and it, it and this topic of hell is certainly one that recurs over and over again i know like a year or two ago it was a, a, a hot button issue in the Christian church because remember Rob Bell wrote that book Love Wins. Yeah, yeah. Um, so which yeah said that there. I, I haven't read the book, so I I, I I hesitate to describe it, but I know it uh, made a lot of people angry because he sort of uh, in in a way rejected mm-hmm. hell. Um, and and I guess without going too deep down the theological rabbit hole, I think there is. I think there is a humility that Christians need to have. That's like, Hey, we know, and it goes to what Lewis was saying that the, probably the, the best thing Christians need to do and approach to hell is just know that it's a terrible possibility. Mm. 
Um, and but if we accept God's forgiveness and we're continuing to work to be pious and and uh, accept His grace and accept Jesus, then then that that should be the last of that we think of hell. Mm. And so that was probably my biggest takeaway. But like out out as a, as a personal Christian, outside of the the uh, Lewis going through each of the objections or common objections, mm-hmm. and and just being able to know those for my own edification mm-hmm. and and for if I if I ever speak to someone who this is a, a grave concern of mm-hmm. theirs, um, what what objection uh, that Lewis answered do you think is the your the most glad that he answered most glad that he answered that's a good one let's see well i think that the one that i that struck me the most was the second the second being uh he calls it a disproportion right yep. a disproportion between a, a very short life mm-hmm. of uh i think he called it tra- oh i got it right here it's of transitory sin right so a short mm-hmm. life lived for uh, on average what like 67 years something like that yeah how does that how does it make sense that that little itty bitty section of life should damn someone to an eternity of hell right mm-hmm. and he gave it he gave it a solid answer he describes time Right. So he describes what yeah. time looks like and how it's a and how in this case, how we might describe it as a line having no width. Right. So mm-hmm. if our is a timeline. Right. Mm-hmm. then he says. Maybe that's not how eternity should be viewed. Instead, it should be viewed as if, if that's a line, eternity should be viewed as more of a solid. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have a beginning and end. It's it's going and it's eternally going. Right. So if you imagine it, if he imagines it as a sphere. Right. And and I guess geometric theory or something. And that sphere is based off of a segment or a line. That'll mm-hmm. be our life. If it is drawn correctly, the sphere is in the correct spot within whatever plane you're talking about. Right. But if the line is drawn askew then that throws the entirety of the sphere. And I think that I, I like being sort of like, I'm, I guess I'm not really a math guy, but I like it. I think it's cool. I'm not good at it, but I enjoy it. Well, you I better be. That, yeah. If you're going to become an engineer, you, you need to know about all <laughs> stuff. Well, I'm getting better. I'm not so good now. I feel like I'm getting better, but I feel like he, this, this, this symbolism that he says that he draws from this is saying like, it makes sense that right now our, our decisions being in, being that we have free will and being that we have this ability to say, I will, or I will not. Mm-hmm. He kind of says it is drawn once and it makes sense that it should be drawn once because I quote a simpler form of the same objection consists in saying that death ought not be final, that there ought to be a second chance. Yeah. And this is where he kind of puts his opinion. I believe that if a million chances were likely to do good, they would be given, but a master often knows when the boys and parents do not that it really is useless to send a boy in for a certain examination again, when it is useless to send him to a certain examination again. Yeah. Finality must come sometime, and it does not require a very robust faith to believe that omniscience knows when. Yeah. Right. So he kind of, he kind of 
punts it to God and he says, this is what God has said. This is exact. This is what the omniscience tells us is the best way. Yeah. Right. And um, if a person, if a person denies and only wants, only wants themselves for the entirety of that life, it makes sense that they would want it for the rest of eternity. So the last second, last paragraph, he says in the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do mm -hmm. to wipe out their past sins at all costs to give them a fresh, a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help. But he has done so. He's done that. Yeah. He has offered every miraculous help. He's done it at Calvary. So you ask to forgive them. Well, they won't be forgiven. Forgiveness is something that must be accepted. So you want him to leave them alone? Alas, I'm afraid. And this is quote, alas, I'm afraid that is what he does. Right. That is yeah. poignant, poignant yeah. to say the yeah, least. It is. Oh, my God. Yeah. Just typical freaking Lewis fashion. Just punch it right at the end. Yeah. It was so well, I just love that lie. I, I mean, it's it's a it's tough to. It's tough to take, but it's yeah. very powerful, very powerful, um, I don't know, phrase, I guess. Yeah, it certainly is. And yeah, it, like I said, that was probably one of the yeah, big takeaways. Moving on to animal pain. Yeah, so, animal pain. This is a weird chapter. Yeah, so I, when I first read the book, I was kind of surprised that he included this, but when but when you think about it, it kind of makes sense. Like mm. in, in the chapter, he was talking about whatever furnishes plausible grounds for questioning the goodness of God is very important indeed. So, yeah, I thought this is like just a very intellectually honest chapter um, for him to include. And I, mm. I also have like a personal reason for why I, I, I appreciated him um, adding this. So mm. if, if I can tell you a little story, Taylor. Okay. So, I'm yeah, so I was in college, and there was this girl that uh, knew I was a Christian, and so she she uh, asked me if if I could take her to church, and so and she just asked me questions about my faith and stuff, and and one and I'll and I'll, I'll just preface all this by this is not one of my best moments. I kind of I kind of regret mm -hmm. this in a way. Um, she asked me with like utter sinc uh, sincerity. She was like do animals go to heaven? And I had not had any experience. I've never had pets really. So I had no experience nor had I ever thought about that question at all. Mm. And I regret to say that I laughed. Oh, I, Thornton. I know. I, I, I feel horrible even today, but it's just like, I, Oh, that must've been rough. So, uh, so, so there, there's a little bit more to the story, but yeah, I just, I laugh because it just the I just the utter idea and how unique it was and just how to my mind I, I wouldn't call it ridiculous but just like that's what she was worried about. I thought she was going to hit me with like a, like the problem of evil question or yeah like questions about uh, just other questions that I guess are embarrassing to some Christians like the the drinking question or yeah. Uh, like the sex question or just, I thought she was asking me something like that. But then she asked me with like, again, utter earnestness and sincerity if animals went to heaven. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I just, I just said, I, I, I don't know. I've, I've never <laughs> thought about that. Um, after laughing and I, and I apologized, I realized immediately that I, that I laughed. 
and that that was that was not good. Um, come to find out, though, she asked, and hindsight, I really wish I knew about this chapter because this would have been perfect for her. But the reason she asked that, though, was she, I, th- I can't remember if she was an anthropology major or not, but she mm. was asking because she thought that the Bible's lack of um, guidance or teaching on animals was mm-hmm. it, it just showed that the faith was too too human centric really that, yes that's what she was saying she's like yeah it's all about humans so like it's so it's not it's it, she was like it's it seems to, it seemed artificial to her in i guess hmm. in the pure sense of being artificial because she just thought since it's so human centric it has to be man-made mm. and and uh, so, yeah, so I thought that was a very interesting line of reasoning and line of thought. The like hindsight, I guess, I guess it's been maybe nearly 10 years since she asked me that question. But since then, I, I guess I would have said that, like, uh, I, 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 it doesn't seem to us animals have souls. And and I and again, like we only know, like God has revealed only so much to us and it, it, and Lewis says in Problem of Pain how the, the I guess the veil has only been lifted to a certain extent. Mm. And I think he says that in this chapter. And, yep. And I think, yeah, that's what's so good about this chapter is like Lewis, well, one, again, I just love his humility. He's like, quote, everything we say about them is speculative. From the, from the doctrine that God is good, we may confidently deduce that the appearance of reckless divine cruelty in the animal kingdom is an illusion and the fact that the only suffering we know at first hand, our own, turns out not to be a cruelty, um, turns out not to be a cruelty will make it easier to believe this. After that, everything is guesswork. Mm. So, yeah. So I, I think there is yeah, obviously some guesswork, but I, I, I liked how he just at least tackled it so that, um, yeah, he can, we, I want to just have some thoughts out there but you know, mm. what I, I i know you said that you didn't uh that this one sort of i just didn't speak to you if you will but i just uh what what, what are your your thoughts on this yeah or my story so first of all your story is awfully hilarious i'm so <laughs> sorry to whoever that may be that must have been that must have been really hard i've i've gotten a fair amount of odd questions about mm-hmm. christianity but I've, I've never been posed with that one well i know in the gospels it's it uh christ says that like if if uh that even christ or even god knows when a sparrow falls and Mm. i'm butchering the paraphrasing but that's so i know it mentions them it certainly doesn't give us a whole treatise on whatever rudimentary personality they have um and i guess it does speak to them in a sense that it says in genesis that man was was to uh I forget the exact verb, but to, I just mm-hmm. rule over the creatures, if you will. Yeah. Um, so which, yeah, which Lewis talks about and, and, you know, talks about that might be sort of one of man's purposes, which I really like this idea. One of man's purposes was to redeem creation and to sort of help be the conduit between God and animals. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's that similar. I think that's similar to what he says in this chapter, actually about exactly. Yeah. It was the third point, I think where he talks about the whole, 
um, the idea of how Christ, how, well, how man is like the, the high priest to the world. Yeah. Right. But so he, he says in a way that if Jesus is our high priest, our connection to God, yeah. right. Then we as man ruling over nature, are the high priests to the animal world. He's saying, not necessarily as fact, but I think he's more like conjecture. He's saying, what if they sort of say uh, an animal was to be tamed and it would be, and it kind of takes on the personality of its owner, which I think that I've seen personally, you know, and we hear about this a lot. Say that does happen and it does sort of take its own personality, maybe even the likeness of a soul, right? (laughs) Maybe those having having to do with maybe the soul of their owner maybe that can lead them to heaven maybe that could be a a sort of conduit opportunity for them to for them to embrace spirituality something like that like i i thought that was a really really interesting point that he put out because i have never considered that or heard about that in my whole life i thought that was such a cool point such a cool little theory yeah, yeah, I completely agree. I think that is a a. Then he says it's guesswork, but uh, right, it's certainly a interesting yeah theory and or hypothesis, and certainly probably not a overall not a bad way to approach the animal kingdom. Okay, so the last chapter, heaven. Yes. What What were your your thoughts on that, brother man? Oh, I I, I loved it. It was beautiful. I thought that he was just happy writing this, you know, yes. like, I feel like he was just, he was, it was almost poetry for him. Yeah, I, I, mm. I totally agree. I think, yeah, after hell and animal pain, which like, like they were good, but he, it felt made compared to heaven, kind of like a slog. He's probably, like, Oh, thank God. I can have talk about the, the, the positive side. Yes. of the Yes. And I think that honestly, the thing that's okay. So this is what struck me about, this this whole thing like well the point in this chapter that really got to me and it is like again i feel like i'm always referencing the beginning of these chapters but anyway i promise i've read the whole thing (laughs) he so he starts out by saying like i like i feel like one of the major self objections that i've had towards heaven or maybe just maybe just rewards i guess like i've always i've always been of the mind you shouldn't do something for the reward you should do it because it's right right but right here in the first paragraph, he says, it's not bad, right? So he says, quote, we are very shy nowadays of even mentioning heaven. We're afraid of the jeer about pie in the sky, of being told that we're trying to escape from the duty of making a happy world here and now into dreams of happy worlds elsewhere. Um, and then he says, and then he kind of goes into this thing where he says, we are afraid that heaven is a bribe. And that mm. if we make it our goal, we shall no longer be disinterested. Mm-hmm. And then he says, it is not so. Heaven offers nothing, offers nothing that a mercenary soul can desire. It is safe to tell the pure in heart that they will see God for only the pure in heart want to. There mm. are rewards that do not sully motives. And here's the kicker. A man's love for a woman is not mercenary because he wants to marry her. Nor his love for poetry, mercenary, because he wants to read it. Nor his love of exercise, less disinterested, because he wants to run and leap and walk. Love, by definition, seeks to enjoy its object. I just thought that was so... I was hearing it from Lewis. I was like, whoa, that's actually so true. It's not bad for us to want heaven. It's not bad for us to look forward to it. Or Or even, I'd say, 
make that a motivation for redemption or for repentance. Right. Yep. I they I want part in that heaven that is so that is so glorious, you know. What what stood out to you in the chapter? Well, to go back to what you said that, yeah, I think that this Lewis really enjoyed writing this chapter and I certainly enjoyed reading it. Yeah. And I remember in the biography episode we talked about one of the reasons people like Lewis so much is that he his ability to paint a picture mm. of wholeness. Mm. And this I think this this chapter is certainly a prime example of that ability of his. The one thing that I did like was actually in the appendix. I, I did you read the appendix? Yes, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. I honestly just want to share a quote. So this appendix is written by R. Havard, MD, from Clinical Experience. It's this it's this little one one and a half page yeah. um, mm-hmm. insert by a doctor um, mm-hmm. who describes pain and how he has seen it in his patients and mm-hmm. how he says basically through one of the quotes that I thought was very insightful. Yes. Uh, it says, quote, mental pain is mm-hmm. less dramatic than physical pain, but it is more common and also harder to bear. Mm-hmm. The frequent attempt to conceal mental pain increases the burden. It is easier to say my tooth is aching than to say my heart is broken. Mm-hmm. That's that struck me. That yeah. hit a chord. Oh, absolutely. And I, I, yeah, I think this is just another example of how he is just a little bit ahead of his time. Mm. And, um, and I, yeah, I think this is certainly, because I know a lot of Christians certainly have a hard time grappling with and just relating to or knowing what to do with, uh, like mental pain or mental anxiety or mental health. And I, I, I think this is, certainly something that you can latch on to since he's talking about it so plainly and yeah it's uh yeah it certainly is a lot harder to to endure and yeah it's and it's there's a whole whole lot harder to endure a whole lot harder to classify Mm. uh some sometimes it's a whole lot harder to empathize with and it's just yes it's a whole lot more vague yes but yeah, yeah, I think this. I'm I'm really glad that that he he mentioned it and 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 gave it uh, gave it some uh, attention. Mm-hmm. I agree, I agree. I thought it was very insightful. Well, listener, thank you for joining us on on this leg of our journey. I know it was uh, longer than our, our normal episodes, but I hope that you, you enjoyed it as much as Taylor and I enjoyed uh, discussing. Yeah, we really, we really, really enjoyed this episode. We really enjoyed reading about it and learning about it. We had, we originally had four hours of content, right? So we had a lot <laughs> that we had to cut down. We, I mean, that's how much we hit. We really got into this. So uh, again, sorry about it being a little bit longer than usual, but we are now looking forward to our next episode where we're discussing mere Christianity. Big, big, yes. big moment for us. We really enjoyed this book, both of us. We've read it many times, and we're really looking forward to being able to discuss the ideas in it. Yeah, yeah, super. Yeah, looking forward to it. Uh, yeah, it's going to be a good time. Yeah, if you want to connect with us and, and let us know your thoughts about the problem of pain or mere Christianity or any other uh, Lewis thought or book, you can reach out to us at 
or on Twitter at Mir C.S. Lewis. Thanks, and yeah, we'll see you all next time. See you guys.